Welcome to the True Health Revealed podcast. I am Dr. Tom Rafai, lifestyle medicine specialist with the True Health Initiative, and it is my pleasure and honor to discuss the sweet spot for physical activity with two renowned guests. In studio, we have Dr. Barry Franklin, Director of Cardiac Rehabilitation, Beaumont Health System here in Royal Oak, Michigan, and a fellow of the American Heart Association. And online, we have Dr. Chip Levee, a fellow of the American College of Cardiology and Director of Cardiac Rehabilitation for the Ochsner Health System. And it is just a pleasure because you two guys are good friends with each other. So welcome, gentlemen. Exactly. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Tom. Absolutely a pleasure. We've done a noted show with both of you individually, but it's going to be super fun to discuss this topic, a, uh, something close to my heart, which is the concept that physical activity, more and more we understand it every little bit counts. And there is a kind of a concept that's still out there that you have to be a, a, well, not necessarily a marathon runner, but work out really hard. And I always invoke that uh, maybe exaggerated example, although I think it happened of, you know, vomiting on the treadmill on the Biggest Loser show. <laughs> and that, that's just not necessary. So I'd like to just uh, start off with the, uh, uh, the, the basic uh, concepts of, you know, what makes physical activity helpful and beneficial, including but beyond uh, formal structured exercise, in other words, the combination and the world of physical activity, what are its benefits? Let's just maybe start with that. And we'll convince people that every little bit counts and you might think uh, you need more than you necessarily do for these benefits. But um, Barry, what are some of those uh, benefits that people can get from going from a sedentary lifestyle to a a physically active one that we're going to prove to them doesn't have to be vomiting on a treadmill? Tom, I think it's critically important to know that regular physical activity has anti-atherosclerotic, anti-ischemic, anti-thrombotic, and anti-arrhythmic effects. Now, those are big words, so what do they mean for the average guy out there? Regular physical activity helps prevent blood clots, helps prevent lethal heart rhythm regularities, helps modify a number of coronary risk factors that lead to the development of clogged coronary arteries or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Those are the key, key factors, and your point is well taken, and that is I used to tell people you need 30, 60 minutes. I was wrong. You're exactly right. Every minute counts. In fact, the American College of Sports Medicine recently took out their 10-minute bouts of exercise. Why? Because lots of new studies, and Dr. Levy will talk about this, I'm sure, have shown that every, virtually every minute throughout the day can contribute to that endpoint. Fantastic. Chip, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree uh, with with all of that. Obviously, the, the national guidelines suggest that all people should be doing 150 minutes per week of physical activity, or of or 75 minutes per week of vigorous phys- physical activity. But we have studies that show that there are benefits at that begin at way lower levels, uh, particularly if one's doing more higher intensity exercise, you can get even benefits from five to 10 minutes of, of exercise and, uh, and, and pretty profound benefits. And Chip, can you, uh, you, you recently, uh, both of you actually have, have published in the Mayo Clinic Journal Proceedings, and we'll leave the big journal names out of this because I'm not sure how much it means to the audience, but necessarily. Uh, so let's discuss the Copenhagen City Heart Study Chip, and then afterwards, the data uh, from China that you both published on recently and how this translates to this sweet spot and that every little bit counts. Well, the Copenhagen study was uh, about 8,700 participants followed for almost 26 years, and we were measuring sports activity. And and basically showed that that there was a sweet spot that that somewhere between this was not a, a study that showed very uh, benefits of super low amounts of, but this is counting all all sports activities in leisure time, and the sweet spot was somewhere between 2.5 and four hours per week, and and doing basically no no uh, sports activity or doing extremely high sports activity were both associated with higher mortality than doing. What was the ideal amount? Now, again, this is this is a, a, a pretty high amount of, of sports activity in in this sweet spot. Um, there are other studies, um, and just for example, we we published a study back in 2014, which is a running study in in Journal American College of Cardiology, which is our leading clinical cardiology uh, journal, where we um, 
assessed 55,000 people followed for between 10 and 15 years. Wow. And and we, we assessed 12,000 runners versus 43,000 non-runners and showed, as you'd expect, the runners had nearly uh, 30% lower mortalities and cardiovascular mortalities. But what was very interesting was when we divided the runners into quintiles, that's like fifths of dosing of the running. And we divide the dosing into times per week, minutes per week, um, the intensity of the running. We basically found that those who were in the lowest quintile, these are people who are running less than six miles per week on average, running less than than um, than than 50 minutes per, per, per week, uh, running just one or two times per week, they got the same benefits as those who were running in the higher levels. And actually at the very high level, we had a second paper in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings uh, in 2016 that showed that the very highest runners, those who were running 35, 40 miles per week, those who were um, running seven days a week, actually appeared to lose the benefit. Not compared to non-runners, I'm sorry, not compared to, um, to, to low runners, but they lost the benefit compared to the runners running in lower doses. So it certainly suggests that more is not better. And this study really uh, raised the idea that just doing small amounts of, of physical activity, particularly, you know, granted running is not the same as a slow walk, but, but, but if just doing small amounts of running appeared to produce the maximum benefits, at least against cardiovascular mortality and all mortality. Now, there's no question if one wants to play to, to, to win the race, if one wants to make their running time better, they're going to have to run more often. They're going to have to run faster. But just for the health benefit of cardiovascular mortality and all-cause mortality, or basically survival, the benefits appear to occur at very, very low doses. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, when we discussed this, this was at a dose of potentially five minutes a couple times a week, you started to see some significant benefit versus the uh, non-active non-runners? Yes, the, the lowest the lowest group of runners actually just ran one to two times per week and ran uh, less than six miles per week. Um, and so this is just a, basically a you know basically a you know a fairly small amount of uh, of running. And and so I guess if you looked at it, if you were running every day, it would take five to ten minutes a day to get this amount. But basically, running twenty minutes twice a week also produced this same uh, benefit. So that leads me to a, a question in terms of people who may not be favorable to running. I've, I've freely admitted I'm a brisk walker. I think both of you have heard the, enough about that, but I think you might have convinced me, Chip, I'll start running a, a little bit here and there. But there is a term that both of you are very well aware of, and people see it on their uh, stress test reports, but they probably don't know what the heck it means, Barry, and, and it's METs. And when we talk about this, your, your MET capacity, what I'm going to ask you to do is, is give some good basic explanation. Then how would that translate to someone walking, gardening, uh, shoveling, w whatever the case may be in a, in a practical way so that they can say, well, if I can achieve this MET level, I'll achieve this health benefit. But how do I do that in my everyday life? What does that mean in a practical a tennis, uh, playing tennis, or however you might translate it in concrete terms? METs stand for metabolic equivalents, and it's really a unit of energy expenditure. So sitting here, all three of us right now are at one MET or one unit of oxygen. When, we, when people do physical activity, we have the ability to classify what multiple of that one MET they are. In general, uh, the higher the METs, the better the cardioprotective benefits. Give you an example. Walking three miles an hour is three METs. Singles tennis is seven METs. Jogging at six miles an hour is 10 METs. So we can use that MET estimate to guide exercise prescriptions or exercise recommendations. I get people all the time who say to me, I don't know, I don't have a, a mask to determine what my oxygen consumption is. How do I determine it? In general, we say, I tell patients, the heart rate is a fairly good index of energy expenditure. So if you're for every eight to 10 beats, your heart rate goes up you increase by one MET. 
If your resting heart rate is 70 and your exercise heart rate is 100, resting is one met, add 30 beats onto that, three mets, you're working at around four mets. So we can use that as a general guide. I also get questions all the time. I'm on the treadmill. How do I know how many mets? Well, some, some mets, some treadmills actually tell you how many mets you're working at. But the simplest rule that I tell patients is remember the rule of two and three miles an hour. Very practical information. Two miles an hour flat grade, Tom, is two mets. Three miles an hour flat grade is three mets. But remember this, at two miles an hour for every three and a half percent grade you add to that treadmill, you add one additional met. Or okay. at three miles an hour for every two and a half percent grade, you add an additional met. So if I got a patient who says to me, I want to work at five mets, I can tell them, okay, work at three miles an hour, five percent grade. Or if he says that's too darn fast, I'll say work at two miles an hour, 10.5% grade. Both of those give you about a five met workload. I will freely admit that I tend to walk flat and then raise it up to 15% for as long as I can handle it, which is only typically about less than a minute, then I drop it back down. But that is very useful information. What, what about the, this concept of rate barrier of, of perceived exertion, where they're, just, they're asking people to look at, you know, can you finish a sentence without taking a breath? Or how would you translate the concept of using these perceived exertion scales, which you see in a lot of gyms or you can look up online, to determine something close to hey, I'm at a good pace. Yeah, Chip and I use this on a day-to-day basis during treadmill testing and during exercise training. The guy who developed it, Gunnar Borg, developed it on college-age kids. Average resting heart rate, about 60. Average maximal heart rate, about 200. And then what he did is he put those guys on a treadmill and asked at a heart rate of 150, what's the most common descriptor? How would you describe? The average descriptor was hard. Heart rate of 170, what did they say? Very hard. So he lopped off the zero on those heart rates and came up with a scale from 6 to 20. And we can use that to gauge pretty much where people are. In general, I think Chip would agree, we want people in the 11 to 13, 14, maybe 15 range for perceived exertion. Chip, would you agree with that? Yes, and, and obviously... Uh... Uh, you know, people who, you know, pushing it on a, on a stress test, you know, trying to get up to a high level, they may get up to 17 or 18, mm-hmm. as long as they're not having uh, chest pain, a bad shortness of breath or, or bad mechanical um, uh, pain. Uh, but, but typically during the, you, you get the benefits of exercise in that, in that moderate range of um, the Borg scale somewhere in the 11 to, uh, to 14. Can I ask you, gentlemen, then, uh, there's been more and more data, chronic kidney disease, recently uh, dementia, that your resting heart rate matters. And uh, in fact, you know, having resting heart rates above 80 certainly uh, is an issue. And in general, let's not necessarily worry about if someone's on a beta blocker that might artificially, if you will, slow their heart rate. But in the natural state, can we adjust our physical activity to a point where we can titrate it, adjust the dose, if you will, and the intensity and the time and whatever it takes to get a resting heart rate down below a level of, it seems like it's around 70 to 80, that uh, you you really, having a resting heart rate above 80 is not a good sign of health. Is that a fair statement? I typically look at a a study that was done, Mayo Clinic Proceedings. They looked at thousands of people, as did Cooper Clinic. In general, what they say is under 60, very good prognosis, and a 61, 62 is great too. Above 80, very poor prognosis. So I tell people, Lower is better. When it comes to heart rate and systolic blood pressure, lower is better. I was taken back by a major study, looked at thousands of cardiac patients taking a drug called beta blockers. What are beta blockers? They lower the resting heart rate. They lower the blood pressure. What did they find? Astounding. They found for each 10 beat lower of the resting heart rate, there was a 30% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. So I tell our fellows and residents, you got no business having a cardiac patient with a heart rate, resting heart rate of 88. Get it down 30 beats, you're gonna cut his mortality by 90% via increased beta blockade, regular exercise, or both. Stay away from caffeine too. Would we, would we? (laughs) You know, so the, the, the normal heart rate is typically, and this is confusing to people, um, that the normal heart rate is 60 to, 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 to 100, mm-hmm. and, and below 60 is considered bradycardia or a slow heartbeat, uh, and, 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 and above 100 is t- tachycardia. 
but it would be actually way healthier to have a heart rate of 50 or 55 than to have a heart rate of 98, where 98 would be, you know, a lot of patients get confused because 98 would be considered in the normal range, where 50, 55 is considered slow heart rate. But but generally, this, as Barry said, the, the slower the heart rate, the healthier the, the person. And, and, and typically, you would like heart rates to naturally be slower. The issue is how to make the heart rate slower naturally. Obviously, we can artificially do it, which is still very beneficial to our patients by giving medications that block adrenaline and therefore slow the heart rate, which is a, a big class of medications called beta blockers. But the natural way to have a slow heart rate is some, there are some certainly genetic components. Um, people who are fitter will tend to have slower, slower heart rates. And People who are doing more physical activity and more exercise will slow their heart rate at rest. And that's because they what they what happens is they improve their autonomic tone. They improve what's called the sympathetic tone. Um, I'm sorry, they improve this parasympathetic tone and reduce the sympathetic tone. The sympathetic tone is the flight or flight fight or flight phenomena. And and so you'd like your parasympathetic system to uh to be stronger and that will tend to slow the heart rate and be associated with much better uh prognosis some people are wearing devices that not only checks their their resting heart rate but also can even check heart rate variability and things like heart rate recovery so the, the ideal heart rate is slower one that has more variability at rest, so not just sitting at one heart rate all day. And then when you exercise, the heart rate should go up high, but then should drop uh, quickly uh, in, in recovery. And this is all indicative of having higher parasympathetic tone, which is associated with much better survival. And, and being more aerobically fit. Let's just be sure. I think, we, I think we've implied this. We all agree that if and whenever possible to get that resting heart rate down naturally through physical activity and exercise, of course, we can use drugs like beta blockers, but uh, we would encourage that first. I, I have a, a quick question, uh, Chip, for you on when someone starts to get physically active who's on a beta blocker, and beta blockers can cause some exercise uh, intolerance because you can't get your heart rate up uh, because of the beta blockade and the, the slowing of the heart rate. Uh, how do you um, uh, carefully wean back as someone earns the right, if you will, to have their beta blocker reduced through the beta blockade, the natural uh, drug, a lifestyle medicine, if you will, effect of increased aerobic uh, capacity and, and physical activity improvements? Well, I mean, one, we assess the resting heart rate and the blood pressure and the exercise heart rate. So if someone's on a beta blocker and they start having a heart rate of 45, we don't need it to be that slow, you know, and so we can cut back on the, on the drug. If their exercise heart rate, let's say they have a resting heart rate of 55, but when they do a hard exercise, it only goes up to 75 or 80, we can allow the exercise heart rate to be a little bit higher than that. Uh, so those would be the kind of things, uh, along with symptoms, uh, that we can use to adjust one's beta blocker. The important thing to, to note, though, is there's no question that performance would be adversely affected generally by being on a high beta blocker. So, for example, in a marathon race, if you could, if, if someone slipped some, uh, slipped some beta blocker into the water bottles of the Kenyan, uh, runners, they would they would uh, slow their heart rate some, and they wouldn't have nearly as good a time in their long distance race. Don't but give on anyone any hand, ideas, Chip. No, I know. Um, I'm sure it's been tried before. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, from the outpatients who are on beta blockers for clinical reasons, and generally the cl clinical reasons to being on beta blockers, having blocked heart arteries, having a heart attack having weakened heart muscle, congestive heart failure, having bad rhythm right. disturbances. that uh, And then generally, they, they can be used for, for hypertension as well, but they're not first-line agents. They're actually, you know, third- and fourth-line agents right. uh, for, for just blood pressure. But, but the training effect on beta block is patients can still in significantly improve their aerobic capacity 
even while being on a, a beta blocker. Um, and so, so, so from a clinical standpoint, we don't, we do, we can get patients to, to significantly improve their exercise capacity despite the uh, effects of the beta blocker. Barry, any yeah, thoughts on that? I agree 100% with Chip because we've been doing this for a long time. But I would add to that, I get the question all the time. I'm on a beta blocker. My heart rate at rest is 60. It only goes up to 80. When I'm really working hard, I can, I'm not getting the benefits of exercise. And my answer is you are still getting the benefits of exercise. Heart rate per se is not the stimulus for training. Heart rate's an indicator per se, but it's really the increase in energy expenditure, oxygen consumption, or METs, that really leads to the conditioning effect. So I had a patient one time who said to me, you know what? You said, Franklin, let my heart rate get up to 120. I'm going to go in the steam room. And he let my heart rate get up to 120. Can I get a conditioning effect without exercising? The answer is no. Uh, do you follow what I, yeah. if I measure your Mets in the steam room, it's still a one Met, even though your heart rate's 120 or 130. So that's a common misconception that many people have. I have got to get my heart rate real high to get a conditioning effect. No, not necessarily. And Chip's, Chip's exactly right. These people can still benefit even if there's a markedly blunted heart rate because they can still increase energy expenditure. Right, right. Your, your heart's just pumping under that heat to try to get some more uh, blood through the skin and cool off, <laughs> not because it's burning and more oxygen. Um, fantastic. So resting heart rate matters. When you get your blood pressure checked, ask whether you, if you're using a machine, pay attention to your resting heart rate. And if you're getting a check to ask that as well, you've got that opportunity. So to the topic now of physical activity and, and looking at this, uh, this sweet spot issue as well, beyond exercise, that we have a, a, a problem in the United States. We have, despite all our pushing in terms of the physical activity uh, encouragement through exercise, we have, you know, I think on the order of less than 25% of Americans that are achieving what we would suggest are optimal levels of physical activity, maybe because they are interpreting it as, I must go to the gym, I must be on a treadmill. All of those things are fine, and I'll frankly admit, I go to the gym. I'm a gym rat, if you will. But my dose isn't that high. This morning, we're in a rush. I was just there for 15 minutes, but I got my incline. And what we can, what can we do outside of the gym? This concept of neat or non-exercise activity time, what I call being a neat freak, if you will. And these opportunities, as we've been saying, it all adds up. We we're mentioning one minute here, one minute there. We're not necessarily you know pushing that as that's the the uh, the the synchronon, but if somebody's got a moment to take a call while walking or take the stairs or walk around a floor of the, the shopping mall before going shopping, agreeing to themselves, well, I'm going to be accountable to what I spent. I'm going to take a walk around the second floor of Somerset Mall nearby here. For all those opportunities, what are, you, what are our thoughts about outside of structured exercise? How important is non-exercise activity time where Americans might want to get started there if they feel intimidated by the gym? or otherwise have a lot of opportunities for movement movement in an unstructured manner. Barry? I think the, an important point, and you, you make the point, that is exercise is cumulative. I used to tell people you need 60 minutes or 30 minutes. I was wrong. <laughs> the latest studies suggest, uh, here's a good analogy. You don't have to put the dollar, I tell patients, you don't have to put the dollar bill in the piggy bank all at one time. You can put four quarters in there, uh, four exercise bouts and get the same as, as putting a dollar in there. Some of the heart failure patients I deal with and some of the morbidly obese people say, Doc, after three, four, five minutes, I'm tired. And my answer is, if you can do 10, 15 minutes, those bouts throughout the day, you accumulate it. The effects of exercise are cumulative. Right. And um, and and Chip, I'd love to have your your thoughts on that too. And But, but uh, in the diabetes world where I tend to spend more of my a focus on insulin resistance, uh, we see the American Diabetes Association now recommending, at least for diabetics, I would suggest to prevent diabetes as well, uh, try to have no longer than 30 minutes of continuous sitting without some, even I think they mentioned kicking your legs under the, the desk for five minutes, anything. I don't know about having it be that rigid 30 minutes of sitting than exactly five minutes of movement. The point really is we see blood glucose really more linked to what you've recently done for physical activity, where brisk exercise in the morning would not help post-dinner blood sugar as much as uh, in terms of the 30, 45-minute brisk exercise in the morning uh, for blood sugar after dinner as much as a mild to moderate 15-minute walk within 30 minutes of that last bite of dinner. In other words, muscle is a kind of a, for insulin sensitivity, what have you done for me lately tissue and distributing that physical movement uh, throughout the day. Any thoughts on that, Chip? 
Yes. Uh, so, so first of all, there's two components. One is physical activity and the other is sedentary behavior. We obviously would like physical activity, the total amount, all the 30, <laughs> one minute, two minute episodes to add up to a decent amount during the, uh, the day. And that could, that can count uh, parking further in the parking lot, uh, not, not, not going to the mall and driving around for 10, 15 minutes to get the, the space right in the front. Oh, like, Chip, I'm sorry. You're describing the... my mother when I was, t- I'm now having these <laughs> nightmares. Okay, go ahead, Chip. Sorry. Yeah, no. So, so parking you, further in the parking lot, taking the stairs when, when, when possible, uh, you know, taking the longer route to your car, you know, it, when you're at work and, and, you know, leaving in the after, in the evening. All of that counts uh, to add up physical activity. But there's also the component, as you said, is sedentary behavior. So if someone does a, a, a 20 or 30 minute exercise in the morning, but then sits the rest of the day, they've certainly lost some of the benefits or maybe a lot of the benefits of their physical activity in the, in the morning. So avoiding prolonged sedentary behavior. Uh, and, you know, I don't know that you have to have the, the time watch on for 30 minutes, but certainly it's not a good idea to be sitting for hours and not getting up. And so, you know, every 30 minutes, 45 minutes or so to get up and, and, and move for a couple of minutes uh, is another uh, thing that is, is, is important for health. And so in the ideal world would have people both achieving decent amounts of physical activity, but also uh, avoiding um prolonged sedentary behavior. And there's a lot of people that basically sit for 10, 12 uh, hours per day. If we could, if we could, we could reduce the sitting time in many people to to six to eight hours, that would be a a tremendous uh, improvement compared to 10 to 12. And again, you think about how people are sitting, they're sitting at their desk at work. They're sitting on the computer, they're sitting watching television. Uh, you know, there's, they're just, there's, there's in a room talking and they're sitting. You know, so people are sitting for prolonged periods of uh, of time, and and for someone who's who's doing very very high amounts of physical activity, well, very high amounts of physical activity or very high levels of fitness will negate a lot of the sedentary behavior. But in a perfect world, we'd both be having decent physical activity, but also prolonging, uh, avoiding prolonged sedentary behavior. Right. And that, that very high physical activity is just not practically achievable for so many. Now, you heard Dr. Franklin chuckle a moment ago while you were talking. Chip, it wasn't anything personal. I just I couldn't help but stand up for a moment when you said that. So, And then I started kicking my legs under the desk, uh, Barry. Let me add something, and I agree with everything Chip said. The take-home message for your listeners is chip away a little each day. Use time, small bouts of time, repeated throughout the day. To Chip's credit, and you may not even know this, Chip recently hit 1,000 publications. I know very few people who've done 1,000 publications. How does he do it? I've watched him. He chips away a little. He can read an echo. He's also talking to somebody and writing a paragraph or editing a paragraph. He chips away a little each day on all kinds of projects. And that leads to huge, huge scholarship and success. Absolutely. You know, I, um, I, for me, I just tend to have made, uh, and I get a call, I go out in the hallway, I've got a nice long hallway, and I, I walk and talk while I take the call. There are ways, I guess the point is, everyone has to figure out their own way of doing it, but don't discount any little bit of physical activity. And if you're if you're sitting and fidgeting, it's probably a sign your body's saying to get up yeah, and move. move. Uh, so that that's fantastic. Um, I want to discuss a, a bit about, and without... Um, scaring anybody, but on, on two ends, on the extreme end of the sweet spot on the high end, uh, in terms of some findings regarding uh, marathon uh, running chip and, and, and Barry, in your case, in terms of events like in Detroit, to obviously the first snow of the year and very and hunting season and so forth, um, starting off with uh, the, the findings in terms of uh, the potential uh, untoward effects of, of of high intensity long distance running. Not that it isn't beneficial in terms of socialization, and it's it's heroic and it's amazing that a human body can do that, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that people might think that something like that is necessarily more beneficial, that there really is a diminishing returns. Not only that, maybe even some risks you might have to accept if that is the type of physical activity uh, that you are uh, pursuing. Let me add here. I tell patients all the time: exercise is a double-edged sword. It protects against, but it can also trigger acute coronary events. 
We did a major paper, March 2020, where we looked at all the studies to date, and we came up to the following conclusion. High volume, high intensity exercise can increase coronary calcium levels and can increase the likelihood of developing atrial fibrillation, both of which aren't good. Uh, There's actually a dose response curve, a J-shaped curve, whereas people who develop atrial fibrillation are generally the most sedentary. As they do mild to moderate exercise, the risk of atrial fibrillation, which can lead to stroke and other serious abnormalities, uh, goes down markedly. But we also see that reverse J-shape, people doing high volume, high intensity exercise, the risk of atrial fibrillation increases again to the point that it's about the same as the habitually sedentary people. So these are things that I know Chip has investigated these things that people need to know. Also recognize we set the world record here in 2009, free press marathon. We had three deaths within 15 minutes of each other. Uh, there's no question about that. Very, very, very high. There are reported deaths every year during marathons and triathlons. Why? To a large extent, people have underlying atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or they've got structural cardiovascular abnormalities, most likely an enlarged heart called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. These things can oftentimes be detected with appropriate screening. I also tell people, don't ignore symptoms. If you're, Paul Thompson, a cardiologist says, if you're exercising, you begin to get pain or discomfort from your belly button on up, even your neck or your back or your your arms, stop exercising because it could be an anginal equivalent. Last but not least, I get the question, I don't know how Chip feels about this, but marathon running does lead to increased cardiac events, no question about it, during the marathon because of plaque rupture, because of uh, heart rhythm irregularities. But triathlons are even more dangerous. Uh, the risk of triathlons is about three-quarters higher than uh, that running a marathon, and most of the deaths during triathlons occur during the swim portion, 66%. Chip, your wow. thoughts? Chip, yes, and Chip, I've got one other thought I'd like you to include in, as you make comments on that, and as you're talking about events, Barry, it brings to mind the the, the controversy surrounding aspirin, that, that we're now questioning whether primary prevention is uh, a good place to be taking a chronic uh, aspirin. But little, few people know that in the midst of an acute event, chewing on an aspirin could be particularly helpful. So I don't want to throw too much on the load there, Chip. I'd love you to comment and take further what uh, Barry was discussing, but also your, your emerging thoughts on aspirin in chronic uh, primary versus secondary, as well as in an acute event scenario. So first about the uh, extreme exercise, I, I do think it's worth emphasizing that in the country, in the world, the problem is lack of exercise, not too much exercise. You know, so you, you, you can't go overboard uh, with, with, with trying to scare people to, uh, to, you know, out of doing a marathon or a, tri- or a triathlon. I think everything that Barry said is, is true, that, um, that there are risks of doing extremely high amounts of exercise. And from a pure health benefit, it's not only not necessary to do that amount of exercise, you'd probably be better for your health to do lower amounts of exercise. Uh, and, 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 and exercise in the sweet spot, which is way lower than, than needed for triathlons and, and marathons. The fact is, though, Tom and, and Barry, that many people are not doing everything for health. They're not racing boats or jumping off of, of mountains, um, you know, just for health. Uh, so, so people are doing uh, long-distance running and long-distance sporting events for sport and for other reasons, and their primary focus isn't always health. And so I don't think we should go overboard of, of scaring people, but they certainly it's worth them knowing that there are risk of the extreme amounts of exercise. And if they're doing it for health, they can certainly uh, achieve the maximum benefits uh, at much, much lower uh, levels. Now, regarding aspirin, um, certainly aspirin is is very, very beneficial in high-risk people. So for people who have had heart attacks, who have badly blocked arteries, uh, the benefits of aspirin way outweigh the risk. The risk of aspirin are are increasing the bleeding risk and maybe a little bit risk of retaining uh, fluid and and worsening congestive heart failure. Uh, But the benefits in people who have had blocked arteries, uh, blocked 
arteries going to the brain, blocked arteries in the heart, blocked arteries in the leg, way outweigh mm -hmm. uh, the risk. In primary prevention, though, the evidence for aspirin is much lower, and certainly that's the case as people age because the bleeding risk goes up. The, the current guidelines are not to prescribe aspirin routinely in above the age of 60. I actually disagree with that in people who are at high risk. And, and the way we can, for example, can define high risk of people who have very, very bad risk factors, or we have tests that we can do in primary prevention, a, a very, very good one is called a coronary calcium scan. So a, a coronary calcium scan measures the plaque in the heart. So if a 60-year-old uh, has a coronary calcium scan and their plaque burden is 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 very low, a perfect calcium score is zero. If someone has a zero or close to zero, the the the, the harm of aspirin is going to outweigh the uh, the benefits. On the other hand, if somebody has a coronary calcium scan of over a thousand, they have a ton of plaque in their heart. Uh, the benefits are probably going to uh, outweigh the uh, the risk. And so, basically, the benefits of aspirin are always higher in people who have much higher atherosclerosis risk. And the classic is the person with known disease, but I think even in the person who has a lot of uh, underlying plaque, they're going to benefit from aspirin. And then what you said about acute use of aspirin, if someone's having a heart attack or having a stroke, probably chewing an aspirin uh, provides immediate uh, uh, benefit uh, to, to help stabilize the plaque and maybe decrease the amount of thrombus uh, that's that's in the artery. And there's been studies of that m many decades uh, ago in, in the acute uh, myocardial infarction or the acute heart attack. The problem is sometimes for patients, though, is that, uh, you know, just for example, if they were having a heart attack, they'd be it would be beneficial to be chewing an aspirin. If they're having a, a peptic ulcer, GI bleed, they'd be hurting themselves by chewing an aspirin. And so that's the problem is that some things, uh, you know, are not totally clear. Uh, but if someone certainly has risk factors for heart disease and they're having chest pain, um, you know, or, or, or acute shortness of breath, I think the benefits of chewing an aspirin would outweigh the, uh, the risk. Right. And I mean, we're talking about the number one killer. And I think we've all discussed that in, in uh, about one third of cases, the first symptom of uh, coronary disease is sudden death. So with that being said, Barry, I think you've got a, a further thought on this. Yeah, I think Chip hit the nail on the head. I would add two additional points, however. To me, the biggest risk, and this is important for your listeners, is the habitually sedentary person who does nothing all year round, nothing all year round, whose son-in-law comes in from out of town. He says, Dad, why don't we go out and play racquetball? And, and the dad says, geez, I used to be a great racquetball player 30 years ago. Let's go. Let's go. I haven't played in years. That's the guy who's at high risk because over that 30-year period, he's developed hidden atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Chip highlights another point, and that is at any given level of coronary calcium, the researchers at the Cooper Clinic and others have shown that, Tom, for each one met increase in exercise capacity at a given coronary calcium, there's an 11% decrease in cardiovascular mortality. So even though you may have a coronary calcium of 200, 300, does that mean you got to stop exercising? No, I want you to keep your fitness up. Only stop if you begin to develop signs or symptoms suggesting there's a problem. But those physically active people with coronary calcium scores that are slightly elevated invariably do better than their habitually sedentary counterparts. And in another point, uh, I'd like you to, to uh, expand a little bit on, and, and we mentioned this, but uh, living here in Detroit, the first snow of the year, they're watching watching fall football and sedentary the entire time, probably maybe eating some chips, drinking some beer, and then the first snow comes, or hunting season, these kind of sudden uh, intense levels of uh, physical activity, obviously, if not exercise, after being sedentary. And, and, and if you don't mind that, if there was physical activity, even within a week of such an event happening, the so-called preconditioning concept, that there's, it's therapeutic even for several days afterwards. Yeah, we've done studies. I lost two dear friends to snow shoveling. So I, I got interested in it in the early 1990s, and we took uh, 10 healthy guys because they wouldn't let me use older, 
older adults at, at Beaumont's parking lot, and we had them shovel heavy, wet snow. The sa- next day, we did a stress test on them, same time of day, and so on and so forth. What do we find? We found the heart rates and blood pressures during shoveling heavy, wet snow were equal to or greater than maximal treadmill testing. And when you combine the cold temperatures, the arm work, as George Clooney would say, it's a perfect storm. Every year, you have heart attacks and acute uh, myocardial infarction, sudden cardiac death. But you can just use a snowblower, right? Well, uh, our studies show if you're shoveling heavy, wet snow, the heart rate's 170, 160. If you're using a snowblower, it's 110. It's not completely uh, negating the, the risk, but it markedly diminishes the risk. Although our studies have shown people die suddenly even using a snowblower because they've got underlying coronary disease, the wind chill factor, the time of day, all those factors contribute to acute coronary events. Chip, any uh, down south, uh, we have obviously a different weather pattern here in Detroit, but is there something analogous uh, in that sense down there? Well, sure. The person that goes out in uh, in 100-degree temperature in a uh, heat index of 110 degrees and does heavy yard work or cleans up after the hurricane uh, can get themselves in, in serious trouble. And I think that the point is, is that this has confused people for, I think, many decades, is that there are cardiac events that occur with exercise. And the people who exercise regularly may have a very slight increase of their cardiac event when they go out for that hour run. But then for the rest of the 23 hours per day, they might have a 50% reduction in their risk of a cardiac event. And so so the, the benefits of exercise way outweigh the risk of the the dangers of that acute exercise. But the person who's been sedentary, who goes out for uh, for an acute bout of high exercise, whether that's shoveling snow, whether that's hunting in the cold weather, whether that's uh, cleaning up the yard after the hurricane in 110 degree heat index, they might be at a tenfold increased risk of the cardiac event during that time. And the way they could drop their risk to way lower would be to chronically exercise and to get themselves in a better level of cardiorespiratory fitness. And, and then they would markedly reduce the risk of the cardiac event during the acute high level of exercise. I want to uh, paraphrase, and, and you'll probably correct me, Barry, uh, uh, Dr. Kim Eagle made a, a comment once about uh, this requirement to do a stress test to prior to physical activity in someone that was sedentary, but somehow if they're going to continue to stay sedentary, you don't need the stress test. He said, I th- think the opposite is probably better. You should get a stress test if someone wants to continue sitting to make sure that continuing to sit is safe. Uh, but yes, you had a you had actually a that was that was uh, Kim Eagle. Yes, but he was really paraphrasing P.O. Ostrand, who was the first guy to say, "If you're going to be sedentary, you're the person who really needs the stress test." Right. Per se, no question about it. Chip's point is also well taken. Although I would contend that the, that relative risk, according to Murray Middleman's data, the myocardial infarction onset study showed a hundredfold. 102-fold increase in relative risk. Two-fold, as Chip said, as much as 102-fold for the habitually sedentary person who once a year goes out and does vigorous physical activity. You know, I probably popped up and down. I do it one more time here. Uh, you know, 10 <laughs> times every time you say that, I'm, I'm standing up and down here in the studio. Uh, I'm going to ask our uh, uh, studio uh, engineer, Mark uh, Pastoria, to uh, get, get me a standing desk for the next one. Um, as we're closing off here, and I can't thank you gentlemen enough for this, is a massive amount of helpful material. And I think by the end of this, everyone will, uh, I, I think, feel really comfortable that every little bit counts. And, you know, you can start off anyway. And if you end up getting into structured exercise, great. But don't let that be the barrier. Just get out and move in any way, shape, or form. It all adds up. But there are a couple other major factors, and especially since we've implied this, you know, there, there's food and, and smoking. It's going to be hard without touching based on you know, the American Heart Association Simple 7, you know, we talk about blood pressure and cholesterol, sugar, and weight, but these are kind of biomarkers. The other three are physical activity, which we spent a whole bulk of the time talking about, but also healthy eating and smoking round out the other. Uh, and um, is maybe a bit of a question in terms of uh, uh, marathon running and, and, and brisk exercise. I know when I do, my hunger goes up. And, and admittedly, and you guys know this, we've discussed this, I've my binge eating issues and, uh, and, and so on. But I think it happens maybe with a lot of people to say, you know, you can't out exercise a, a bad diet. Not that I'm big into the word diet, but you know, thoughts in regards to food and smoking as we close out 
this uh, as we close out this uh, segment. Barry? Well, I, I guess the points I would make are food, your eating patterns matter. Uh, there's a classic study, New England Journal of Medicine showed, and I, I follow this diet, so I say it, a, a Mediterranean diet reduced the risk of cardiac events by 30% as compared to a usual care uh, low-fat diet per se. Also, uh, the Epic Oxford study showed that people who are largely vegetarians have a 32% lower risk for acute coronary. It's not 100%, it's 32% lower risk for acute coronary events. So we have very, very good data to say that diet matters. Secondly, cigarette smoking. Patients sometimes say, what should I do? If, I, if they're a smoker, even before exercise, I say, we got to find a way for you to stop smoking. Why? Because cigarette smoking kills 540 to 600,000 U.S. adults every year. Point number one. Point number two, the studies are unequivocal, Tom. For every lifelong smoker loses, on average, 10 to 12 years. That's not weeks. That's not days. That's not That's years when you study thousands of people like I do. Thirdly, secondhand smoke. If you're married to a smoker, you're breathing that smoke on a regular basis, your likelihood, even after adjusting for other variables, we call them confounders, increases 30% uh, of having a heart attack. So diet and smoking also matter, and I'm sure Chip wants to weigh in on these. And, and I just want to add it. It seems that there's a somewhere around 300 to 500 sudden infant death syndrome events that are have been attributed to secondhand smoke as well. So it really is a, a, a big issue, not just for the smoker. But yes, Chip, your, your thoughts on uh, food and, uh, and smoking as it relates to overall health as we kind of complement our big discussion on movement. Yeah. So, so first on smoking, I think the, the important thing is, is that uh, the benefits of smoking cessation are noted on cardiovascular disease extremely early. Within a year of, of stopping smoking, obviously if somebody's been smoking for 20 years, you'd say they got some hardening of the arteries built up because of smoking. Uh, they're going to still continue to have risk. But the, but the effect on heart attack and stroke is almost down to the non-smoker level after uh, a year of smoking cessation. It might take almost 20 years for the lung cancer risk to become the, uh, at the level of a non-smoker, but the cardiovascular risk, which are actually way higher than lung cancer, um, go down very, very fast. So the, 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 smoke, the smoker who stops gets benefit very, very early uh, for reducing their, their risk of heart attack and stroke. With regard to diet, I, I totally agree with what Barry, Barry said. A, a more plant-based, a more Mediterranean diet uh, is is beneficial. I think what's sometimes confusing is is the is the information on fat and carbohydrates in the diet. I think that for uh, for people who are very physically active and thin and do not have a high glucose and and high triglycerides, probably having uh, a diet higher in in carbohydrates is fine. But on the other hand, in our society, where there's such a high prevalence of obesity, there's so much metabolic syndrome and diabetes uh, and so much sedentary lifestyle, many of those individuals would be actually better uh, taking a diet that's higher in fat, particularly if it's good fat. Good fat would be from nuts, from, uh, from olive, olive oil, from, from fish oils, uh, that those fats would be much better than the, uh, than the calories consumed from simple sweets and even from complex carbohydrates. I think there's some uh, truth that rings in there. We just want to make sure everybody knows the distinct difference between jelly beans and garbanzo beans. They, are, they might both be carbohydrates, but I think we'll all agree that they're dramatically different in terms of their metabolic effect. They tend to follow a it's all similar, a flexitarian approach. I think that's now tied for number two with Dash against Mediterranean in the U.S. News and World Report. All of these, though, are kind of plant-predominant, less processed, less refined forms of eating. Pick whatever works for you. The food, the smoking, the physical activity all likely commonly result in reduced inflammation, which is going to reduce the risk of one of those bubbly plaques rupturing in your coronary arteries or in, uh, in a cerebrovascular uh, area of the brain. Any final thoughts before we wrap this up, uh, Barry? Yeah, I would build on Chip's uh, point on smoking cessation and highlight the fact 
I tell patients, they say, I'm 55, I'm 58, I've been smoking all my life. My point is, it's never too late to quit. And there are good data to suggest, even if you quit at 55 or 60, you're going to get some benefit out of it. Secondly, what's the ideal age to quit? Two major studies have shown you cut the risk of cigarette smoking by 90% if you quit under the age of 40. Hell, don't wait till you're 39 and a half. Quit at 32, 33. And if you want to obviate any of the risk, quit under the age of 30. So quit ideally under the age of 30 or under the age of 40. Fantastic. Chip, any final thoughts? No, I think that uh, you you had mentioned inflammation, and and certainly inflammation is is one of the uh, important factors in cardiovascular health. And so the best ways to limit inflammation is to exercise, prevent high obesity, lose weight, uh, and get your, your, your cholesterol treated with statin medications if you cannot uh, get good, uh, good lipids with, uh, with diet and exercise alone. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I think there's one suite that we think everyone can indulge in, and that's a sweet spot of physical activity. Do whatever you can. Oh, let me stand up one last time. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for that uh, motivation. Gentlemen, this was a great discussion. We can't thank you enough. We hope to have you back again on the True Health Reveal podcast. Make it a great day. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Barry. Well, there you have it, everyone. We have found the sweet spot to two great guests, uh, Dr. Barry Franklin, Dr. Chip Levee. Just get moving. Every little bit counts. It really matters in every way, shape, or form, every step that you get. You like to walk. You like to lift. You like to jog. Whatever it is, do you. It is important. Physical activity in every way, shape, or form adds up throughout the day. If I were to add any emphasis, just try to distribute it. Try to avoid that chronic sitting time with every little bit of activity you can get. Light physical activity complements the moderate to more vigorous physical activity of exercise, and that light activity doesn't even require a sweat. Take calls while walking. Park a little bit further. Take some stairs. If it's eight floors up, Take the elevator up to the seventh floor and just go up one flight of stairs. It doesn't matter. Start wherever you can, and you will be surprised how you'll feel better. You'll start the momentum, the food, physical activity going together will become easier. And I hope that you truly enjoyed this True Health Revealed podcast. Please stay tuned for more. We are proud to present this content to you via the True Health Initiative. And if you can, please go to truehealthinitiative.org and consider a donation. Thank you for listening to the True Health Revealed podcast. We appreciate your time and hope you'll join us again. For more information on today's episode and to subscribe to future podcasts, please visit truehealthinitiative.org. And to help us continue the fight against fake facts, please consider donating to our nonprofit True Health Initiative.